The ninth plague that was to come upon Egypt is considered in some circles to be the most significant judgment against the Egyptian religion. That is because the greatest of their gods was supposedly the god of the sun. And some believe that its name is incorporated within the name of Pharaoh. But suddenly, and without any warning, it along with the other gods of Egypt was proved to be useless and to be worthless. One commentator describes how this must have looked like in the most vivid terms. And I, 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 I just want to quote it to you. If you can translate yourself from here as it were, bring yourself into this passage, and suddenly this ninth plague was to be unfolded. He said, and I quote, gross darkness could be a normal thing in the land of the midnight sun. But this wasn't Norway, nor Alaska. This was Egypt. This was the land of perpetual sunshine. 365 days in the year, the sun shines in Egypt. And 365 nights in the year, the skies are so alight with moon and stars that there's little like it to be seen from earth. The planets seem nearer than the lights of neighbors. Through our fogs, the heavens may be millions of light years away, but in Egypt, they seem to be just out the window, just beyond the treetops. Suddenly, the sky and the light were eclipsed by a phenomenon that fell upon the land. The verb denotes a swiftness as when a lion falls upon an unsuspecting prey. Life comes to a halt. The people were forced to remain in their beds for three days. They were without food. They could not see each other. They lived choking and grasping, gasping in their beds. End of quote. I think that's very telling. What made things worse is that Pharaoh received no warning of this plague. Moses this time is not directed by God to stand before Pharaoh as at other times so as to give him opportunity in order to repent. And so as we have already learned from the previous plagues, grace rejected continually becomes grace removed. When God stops striving with man, then judgment is the next experience for man. That is why I want us to consider the darkness. It was lights out for the Egyptians, but especially for Pharaoh in particular. And as we look at these verses, I believe there's a parallel that we can draw from the New Testament and from the message of the gospel of God's redeeming love. I want you to see, first of all here, the significance. Moses obeyed the command of the Lord. That command was for him to stretch forth his his hand toward the heavens, and there was to fall a darkness over the land of Egypt. But men and women, there are some things about this plague of darkness that I suggest are particularly of interest and instructive to us. I trust that you have noted the description that we're given of this plague, both in the instruction that God gave to Moses as well as the actual presence of it in the land. Because we read there in the words of verse 21, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness that may be felt 
darkness that may be felt. And so it turned out to be, as the next verse tells us. The darkness was such that it was thick, insomuch that they could not see one another. Now, in the very best of dark nights, we can see people. We can adjust our eyes, can adjust to the darkness of this land. But here's a darkness that the Scriptures tell us could be felt. And they couldn't see one another. And they couldn't speak to one another. And they couldn't leave of their houses either of necessity. They were confined to them. In terms of Pharaoh, we might say that while the locusts, they blocked out his view of the earth. Now this darkness, it blocks out his view of the heavens as well. For them, the days and the nights were the same. And this was one long night. This darkness is something that cannot be explained away from some natural occurrence. The world in its so-called wisdom will seek to leave God out of it. Would you consider that while the wind is mentioned when God was to remove the locusts, as we find it there in our reading of verse 13, etc., there's no wind mentioned with this darkness. The supernatural darkness came upon the land of Egypt because it was a divine intervention. But you'll also notice the duration. Verse 22, and says, And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. As the last three days. As I've said to you, the days were the same as the night, and so it was as if for the Egyptians they had six nights all rolled into one. And what must they have thought to themselves? One might have thought the fault was in their own eyes and maybe they started to rub their eyes continually. Another might have thought that the sun was lost out of the firmament and is now withdrawn forever. Others may have thought that all things were returning to their first confusion before God created the light to rule by day and night. For three days, all that they could have is these thoughts. They couldn't leave their homes. They couldn't speak to each other. They couldn't see each other. But you know, the duration surely has another significance. For as that supernatural darkness descended in Egypt for three days, so at Mount Calvary. There was a supernatural darkness there as well when it was to veil the cross for those three hours in Jerusalem. We read of it in Mark chapter 15 and the words of verse 33 where it simply says, And when the sixth hour was come, and you work it back, the day began at six o'clock in the morning. And so the sixth hour in the morning is twelve noonday, when the sun is at its zenith. From the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness was to veil the cross for those hours. Habakkuk reminds us 
God is of pure eyes and to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And there at Calvary, the only begotten of the Father who knew no sin had yet become sin for us. And God veiled that scene by that supernatural darkness that no eye could see the torments or the punishments or the sufferings that the Savior endured for the sins of his people. You know, there's some artists and they paint, they have depictings of Calvary, of the three crosses and the Savior's head slung into his chest. And I've brought out to you before that that's not according to the Scriptures. But they can't paint this. It's all of their imagination, you see. Because those hours, those last hours on the cross were veiled with this black darkness that none could penetrate and see beyond it. And as in Egypt, the darkness signified a full manifestation of God's withdrawal. So God the Father had withdrawn from God the Son as he became the sinner's substitute. And the cry that ascended out of that darkness was, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that not significant? Three days, three hours. Please note also the deprivation because of this darkness. Verse 23 They saw not one another, neither rose from any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Everything came to a halt for the Egyptians for three days. They did nothing. They didn't even rise from their beds. The darkness deprived them of normal activity and restricted their lifestyle. And I bring that out to you because, ironically, I'm sure you've heard it as I have. Isn't the scorn of the world, isn't the scorn of the unbeliever the often that the Christian life is restricted and they are deprived of having fun and that is the lie of the devil for indeed the very opposite is the case. It's the unbeliever that is deprived of living life to the fullest. The Lord said, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. The sinner is deprived because of their sin. They're shackled in the chains of sin. Their sinful habits are what binds them. Just ask the smoker to give up the fags. Just ask the man or woman at the strong drink of the world to stop drinking. Ask the gambler to stop putting the bets on, to stop going into the bookies, the drug addict to stop his kicks, and you will have living proof that they are those who are truly in bondage and restricted, and they cannot throw off the chains themselves. Here the Egyptians are restricted. Here they are bound. I wonder, dear loved one, tonight and under the sound of the preacher's voice, you're not seeing it. Have you been brought to see the state of your life, even by what we see in these Egyptians at this time? And I would that you would consider the words of the greatest liberator of men. Because we read in John 8 in the words of verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. You can enjoy the freedom of that abundant life, of that eternal life. 
I give unto my sheep eternal life, the Savior said. You can enjoy that tonight as only Christ can give it to you. How significant is that? But you know, having noted something of the significance, I just want to home in on the separation. It's so striking when we read the concluding part of verse 23. It says, But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. It denotes a separation as we have seen betimes with the other plagues. Contrast Consider the contrast there, looking at the Egyptians, getting a a view, getting a picture of what it must have been, and then turn your gaze to the land of Goshen, turn your gaze to the houses of the Israelites. The contrast is noted in verse 23 by that word, but, but denotes a change. What a change, what a difference it was. For while Egypt was in complete darkness, the light had been withdrawn, yet all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. That proves again that this was a miracle from God himself. While Egypt had been abandoned, God whose light was still with the nation of Israel. This light with Israel was as supernatural as the darkness was in the land of Egypt. You know, the Egyptians had a darkness that they could not light up. And Israel, they had a light that they could not put out. And that contrast but enforces the truth about the company of God's people in all ages. There's a difference between the people of God and the ungodly in this world. God's people are those who walk in light. The opposite is so for the unbeliever. The Lord himself spoke the truth in John chapter 8 and the words of verse 12. He said, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In other words, if you're not following Christ, you're in darkness. Darkness by nature and your sinful depravity before a holy God. While the world think they understand things pertaining to this life, the people of God have an understanding by the Holy Spirit of things regarding the next life. And the Apostle Paul uses the same illustration. If you would turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see it even for yourself. He uses the same illustration of the difference between the believer and the ungodly as he writes to the church here at Ephesus. Chapter 5, look at verse 8. He says, For ye were sometimes. There's the past tense. He's, as he does in chapter 2, he casts their minds back to their own sea of days. He says, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now there's the present tense. Are ye light in the Lord? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. You want to see what's in the corner of a room, what do you do? You put the light on. The light manifests things. It shows up things. 
And that's why the ungodly, they don't run to the Lord, as we're told in John's Gospel, because the light shows what they are, undone before a holy God. All things that are approved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And the company of God's people are children of light, because God has revealed himself to us. You know what God did in creation? He did also in salvation. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 brings it out. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, when there was nothing in this world but darkness and the void, God spake the lights into being. He gave the sun to rule by day and the moon and the stars to rule by night, the lesser lights. And God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. That heart of the child of God, as it was with the preacher's heart, was in darkness and sin. But God commanded the light of the gospel to dawn upon that darkened heart that it was dispelled. And we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now you consider how different it is for the unbeliever. You can do that if you turn back to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4. In the words of verse 19. It's a little verse that simply says, The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. They know not at what they stumble. And that is because, as Paul said again to the Ephesian believers, the ungodly are without God in this world. That's the state that you're in tonight without Christ or God's salvation. You stumble on in the darkness of your sin when it could be so different. The gospel tells you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it is the only message that can transform you from being in darkness to being in the light. I wonder, do you see yourself in the company of the Egyptians in complete darkness? And just across the way, all the company of God's people, we read, had light in their dwellings. Thank God you're still in the day of God's grace. Thank God the light of the gospel can yet penetrate the darkness in your heart and in your soul and dispel it, whereby the power of God, you can be brought from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. That's the miracle of the new birth. That's what God can wrought in a heart tonight. In all of this, as you picture this separation in your mind's eye in that land of Egypt, I want you to consider Calvary again. For the Lord turned away his face from Christ as he hung on that middle cross as a sinner's substitute, forsaken by God and forsaken by men as he was enduring the wrath of God so that we would never have to. Because the separation that there was between the Egyptians and the Israelites, you man and woman, I believe, surely is a solemn, full-on picture of what it will be for all eternity. 
a great separation here. There's a great dividing line between what was all in Egypt to that in the part of the land where the Israelites were. And so there will be for eternity. It utters a solemn warning for all who are still out of Christ and without a Savior for the unconverted soul to continue as they are, slighting the mercy of God and the gospel, refusing to heed the warnings just as Pharaoh did to those warnings from the Lord. And the day will come and they shall be finally cast out into the darkness. Matthew chapter 8, the words of verse 12 depict it, where it says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember the king's son, marriage of the king's son, the man who hadn't on the wedding garment. He was separated. Friend, how comest thou in hither not having on the wedding garment? He was cast out into outer darkness. Eternally separated. Jude describes what God has prepared for those who reject the way of the cross as the blackness of darkness forever. In Egypt, it was only three days. In a lost sinner's hell, it is forever. And as we know, from the rich man who died and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, it is an eternal separation from the company of God's redeemed. There's a dividing line. You see, we read in Luke chapter 16, the message that he received was of a great gulf fixed. Verse 26 says, Beside all this between us and you, that is Abram speaking, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, cannot deliver a soul out of hell. Now's the time. When the gospel has been preached, now is the time when men and women must take heed to the message. It's too late when they're there. It's too late when they're gone and dead and in hell rising and sinking in those everlasting flames. Neither can they pass to us that they would come from thence. There's no escape door in hell. It's blackness of darkness forever. And that's why we plead with a sinner in the gospel to flee from the wrath of God that is to come and instead to look away to Calvary. For there you will find one who paid all the punishment that we deserved. And he paid it in his own body on the tree. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, are you facing or in danger of facing this eternal separation. It's only three days in Egypt. It's forever and eternity. There's one final thought I want to bring out to you, and that is the suggestion. What way Pharaoh responded can be noted from the closing words. There's a proposal that was suggested. 
What it amounts to is just another poor decision on the part of Pharaoh. After all, he had driven Moses and Aaron out from his presence, verse 11 of this chapter, and now he has to call them for them again. But instead of repenting of what he had done, instead of taking heed to these judgments from God, Pharaoh was to make a proposal that amounted to nothing more than a compromise. Verse 24, and Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. But what we learn from Pharaoh is that we cannot compromise with God. Once Pharaoh understood that God was more powerful than he was, he sought to make the compromises. And that's a message on his own, and I'll, God willing, bring another time. The compromises. But those who oppose God's will will ultimately be broken. I trust I'm not preaching to someone tonight and you're fighting against what is God's sovereign will in your life. What we must learn to do instead is to submit ourselves to Him wholly as the wise, the all-powerful, the sovereign, the exceedingly gracious God. For His will for His people is always good. It's always acceptable. And it's always perfect. The response of Moses to this proposal was firm and resolute. He would have none of it. See 25, verse 25. He said, Thou must... Give us also sacrifice and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not a hoof be left behind, for thereof must we take to serve the Lord our God. And we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come hither. Pharaoh, what you're suggesting is ridiculous. How are we going to make our sacrifice unto the Lord if the cattle is left behind? The suggestion from Pharaoh took on a more sinister course. For he issues a promise. You'll find it in 28. Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself. See my face no more, for in the day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. There's nothing more than a threat upon his life. It was as much to say, Moses, have you ever ventured into my presence again? You're as good as dead. You know, men and women, that only reveals how wicked his heart was. Because I'm mindful of what the Savior taught in Matthew 15, in the words of verse 19. It said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. It's out of the heart. Dear sinner, remember tonight that heart of yours is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's capable of doing all the wickedness imaginable. And that's why you need a new heart. And thank God for His grace that restrains that heart of yours and mine. Because our hearts are capable of sinning even the vilest of sins, but for the grace of God. You need a new heart. 
You need a spiritual heart surgery whereby God has promised in salvation, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. I wonder will you take the promises of God at first hand tonight? I wonder will you rest your life, your soul, your eternity upon him? The suggestion, it ascends to an even greater height in the last verse. Because in Moses hearing this threatening promise from Pharaoh, he was to give a prophecy. Verse 29 says, And Moses said, Thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face again no more. Now, we know what happens in the coming chapters, but Moses doesn't. This is a record. This is the narrative that Moses, the books of Moses, Moses is penned. But we know what's going to happen with the night of the Passover and the Red Sea. Moses doesn't. And so here we're looking at a prophecy. Pharaoh, you've spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. The lights were going out for Pharaoh. Because that was the last time that God's servant would give him a word. The next time that he would see his face would be when he was dead lying upon the sands of the Red Sea. It's clear that Moses wasn't afraid of Pharaoh nor of his threats. The tables were going to be turned. And how Moses could be so resolute and how he could be so defiant in the face of of Pharaoh this time, as explained to us by the Apostle Paul. And I have to confess, I never linked this before. But I think it is the, the very explanation, and it brings us right to this very moment of this ninth plague. What am I referring to? I'm referring to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 27. It says, By faith he, that is Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. The king had threatened him. I see your face again, you're dead. And yet this great chapter of faith, it tells us, By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Why? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured as seeing the Lord. His faith was in God who never fails. Who never goes back on his promises. And his prophecies will come to pass. Child of God, maybe you face a difficulty, a threat. Might be insignificant to others, not to you. You can be resolute. You can be firm. Just the same way as Moses was, as seeing him who is invisible. Dear friend, those prophecies of the end time, those prophecies of the Lord coming back again for his own people, 
those prophecies of the great judgment day that is yet to come, and of that separation of all separations, are true. They're true. For God's word is truth. The prophecies of wrath is wrath being poured out upon all who reject him and that obey not the gospel. They're true. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 gives us a sample. It says, In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished. That's a prophecy. That's a promise. With everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those prophecies are true. But dear people, so are his promises and prophecies of mercy. He shall say unto his own, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He will say unto those in his right hand, Matthew 25 and 34, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Those prophecies are true. Would you not want to be assured that you'll hear those welcoming words? That it will be an eternal day for you instead of an eternal night in hell. And turn to Christ by faith now. Have done with your sin. Have done with the lies of the old devil. Seek Christ as your Savior. Then you'll know by experience. Experience of the new birth, of that translation from darkness unto light, the eternal light of Christ, and the hope of that everlasting day in that land where there's no more night. And they, no need, they need no candle, neither the light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Thank God tonight the child of God can leave this meeting house and able to read their titles to mansions in the sky. Assured that one day we'll walk in that eternal light and we'll see Christ, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Why? Because we came to church every Sunday? Because we did this, that, or the other? No, all because of Christ who said, I am the light of the world. Will you come tonight? I pray the Lord might write his word upon each and every heart and might encourage the heart of the child of God as well as challenge those who are yet without Christ.